We're each delighted, no doubt, that God has sufficiently blessed us to permit us to assemble this morning in the way that we have. And just to think about some of the messages of those songs we've sung already is so uplifting. Hold to God's unchanging hand. The constancy and the dependability of the God of heaven. We certainly are thankful for those songs that Brother Larry has led us in and the ability that we've had to engage in those singings as well. You may have noticed this morning that the lesson involves the cross and paradoxes. Now, the very thought of a paradox certainly is a very intriguing thought by itself. And I thought we might do well to define what we mean by that word at the very outset of the lesson this morning. The word paradox actually comes from an original Greek word. It's a composition, you see, of a couple of ideas. P-A-R-A is a Greek prefix that carries a thought of at or beside of. That word dokain, as you can see, means to think or to seem. And you put those things together, and that has come to be used to describe a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it's apparently true. From time to time, we encounter paradoxes in life and also in the Bible, don't we? How quickly do we think, for instance, about the statement the Lord made, if you want to be first, got to be last. Jesus said that. How can I be first if I'm actually the one that's last? And yet He said that in Luke 14. Well, you and I realize He was speaking about those who would exalt themselves, for if you do that, you'll be abased. But on the other hand, if you humble yourself and you serve others, then the Lord said He will exalt you. Well, the idea of a paradox doesn't just occur in a text like that one. May I suggest that the cross of the Lord is perhaps the greatest source of paradoxes in all the Bible. And let's develop a few of them this morning. As we close that slide and make ready to do that, I've just tried to list them. And let me be quick to say that the ones we discuss are not the only ones that might be developed. But first, a few observations before we jump into the fullness of some of those paradoxes. Isn't it amazing how the cross can mean such different things to different people? The very mention of the cross of Christ to some people, they might think about that which is at the end of a necklace that they wear about their neck. Or maybe to others, they quickly think about some element that occurs in someone's yard. It's not that unusual to drive past and see someone with a cross that in fact is placed in their lawn or in their yard. But may I suggest that even the Bible highlights that the cross itself is a rather powerful representation. Isn't it true that to the Jews, Paul would say in Romans 9, it's a stumbling block. The Jews saw in the cross that which they could not accept. That God died for me? that God offered Himself, and therefore Paul exactly said to them the cross was a stumbling block. On the other hand, to the Gentiles, many of them looked upon the cross with foolishness. We saw that in the text that was read a moment ago. In that 18th verse of 1 Corinthians 1, would you again note the language with me? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. That first Corinthian epistle was written to that congregation, obviously at Corinth, and 
there was a combination. Some had been Jews, some had been Gentiles, and unfortunately there were many of both of those numbers who in fact were looking upon the cross in foolishness. Today, how many still look upon the cross with foolishness? They fail to see in it the power of what it possesses, the opportunities that it makes available, and the hope of heaven that only it can bring. It is in the cross today that we'll see a number of paradoxes. So as we close that slide and make ready for some of them, why don't we look at the first one? The first one I would invite you to consider is this. In the reality of the cross, we see not only mankind's darkest day, but His brightest day as well. You might ask, how can that be? How can at the same time it be both the darkest and yet the brightest of days? Well, first of all, why don't we give thought to who the Master was? Jesus is the only perfect one that ever walked this planet. For the period of time in which He tabernacled in the flesh, He never ever committed er error in terms of sinfulness. He never ever, in fact, did things, said things, or thought things that were inappropriate in the sight of God. Now, many times men didn't approve of what He said, but that doesn't matter. Jesus Himself said in John 8, 29, I always do that which pleases Him. With that thought in mind, the Hebrew writer was so quick to affirm in Hebrews 4, 15, He never ever sinned. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He never sinned. You would have thought perhaps the human family would lift him to the highest echelon of respect, that they would honor and adore him for the wisdom and insight and prudence which he exemplified. And yet they killed him. They nailed him to a cross in a humiliating, excruciating kind of death. Mankind's darkest day? Absolutely. The God of heaven had sent him to be, you see, that means of instruction and learning and hope. And yet, men, of course, treated Him so differently. Jesus spoke a parable in Matthew 21. And you remember that the husbandman led out his vineyard to these individuals, the owner, I should say, to these husbandmen who were charged to care for it. Sadly, they beat the, the messengers, the, those that were sent to collect from the earnings, and they did that more than once, but ultimately the master said, I'll send my son, surely they'll reverence him. And they killed him too. Surely they'll reverence him, surely they'll honor him, but they didn't. You'll notice on that slide, what a dark day for justice. You and I seemingly have an innate sense of that which is unjust. And we seemingly anticipate that those who dwell in injustice, they'll pay for that. Our law system is supposed to operate on that premise, that those who do injustice and do that which is not right will pay for that which they've done. Jesus had never done anything wrong, never once. And yet He was killed, mankind's darkest day to be sure. So on that day, on that Thursday in the year A.D. 30, in the early time of the spring, they put to death the Son of God. A dark day indeed. But if you'll notice beyond that on the slide, 
I've asked you to notice, look at what brightness has come from it. It has shined forth to illuminate the fullness of the human family. For Jesus said, for all to come, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me, He declared in John 12, 32. He invited one and all to taste the precious life-giving water that only He could offer, John 4, 14. Did He not say, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35? He offers to all the capability and the honor of life. I came that they might have life, He said, and have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10. Man's darkest day, but oh, how bright it has come to be. In fact, isn't it true that shortly, a bit later today, we will partake of the Lord's Supper, taking our mind back to that cross, but in it we enjoy life. Life because He gives it to us. He could say in Matthew 26, 28, with respect to that blood that He was about to shed, He could speak in such power, This blood is the New Testament, or this cup is the New Testament, my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Our sins can be forgiven because of the cross, because of what took place that day. As dark a day as it was from a pure human standpoint, how bright it has come to be in reality of what we can enjoy because of it. In Romans 5, verses 12 and following, Paul could speak about, Through Adam came death, through Jesus comes life. Through the agency of that cross, our sins can be forgiven. We can be alive with God and look forward to the hope in heaven. To close that slide, isn't it then sweet to reflect of that beautiful high calling of God in Christ Jesus to borrow the words of Philippians 3.14. So here's a paradox. The darkness associated to the cross, but the brightness that has come with it as well. What about a second paradox? This one I've entitled like this, God, Sin, Sinners. Let's develop it like this. God's creation of man indicates incredibly the special nature that we enjoy. After all, we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Sometimes later in the Word of God, that concept is at least developed, and it is cast upon the human family very specially because we, you see, are such that we are immortal spirits. We're not just body. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that we are body and spirit and soul. Immortal spirits. God is a spirit, John 4.24. And therefore, since we are spirit as well, we have a kind of existence not unlike His. We'll never die. So to speak about that aspect leads us then to note this. God wants all of His human creation to have a wonderful and close and sweet relationship with Him, just like He wanted to have with so many in the Old Testament. Do you recall that He walked in the garden in the cool of the day? Adam and Eve enjoyed that kind of a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And yet, so often... We read verses like these. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God would have all men to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. 
2 Peter 3 verse 9 will say it like this. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a fascinating consideration, isn't it? To think that this almighty, all-powerful, awesome God of heaven wants to know you and me individually. And He wants us to serve Him because we love Him, because we appreciate Him. You might ask, how does this connect to the cross? Well, you know that sin destroyed that closeness. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, Genesis 3 reminds us. And Isaiah 59 will pointedly say it like this, Your sins have separated between you and your God, and therefore you and I are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. At this point, look then at what the cross did. Without the cross, we're apart from God. In sin, we're separated from Him and in a condition of hopelessness. Ephesians 2.12 will make that emphatically, doesn't it? You have no hope either in God or in the world to come. But now look at the cross. We were apart from God in sin, but now in light of the cross, we're drawn nigh, we're brought near to Him. And that aspect that we suffered under as sinners can be forgiven. On that slide, I've asked you to then note this. In that cross, we see that God sent His Son. And He did so as an indication of how much He hates sin. Every time we reflect on the cross, it should be a reminder of how much God detests, how much He loathes, how much He abominates the thought of sin. And when we're covered by it thus, He cannot approve of that which we've done. He can't approve of that which we have been. But in the cross, we should realize what we can be forgiven. That aspect of darkness, as we noted a moment ago, is gone. The last element on that slide, doesn't it point out that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That golden text of the Bible in John 3.16 points out that then in the reality of what the Lord made available, God's love, the hatred for sin is now overwhelmed by the fact He loved us beyond that hatred. May that be a constant reminder motivating us not to be given to sin, not to be given to that which God doesn't approve. What about paradox number three? In addition to these two, one that I've entitled Satan, Victory, and Defeat. Satan, Victory, and Defeat. At the very top, we've already highlighted that sin brings separation from God. But Romans 6.23 then says this, The wages of sin is death. Sin is going to bring death inevitably, absolutely, and without question. And therefore, in sin, you and I are nothing but subjects, if you please, of death. We are spiritually separated from God, and if we continue in that, we were going to die physically that way too, and forevermore we shall be separated from Him. That's too horrible to contemplate. It's too horrible to dwell upon the reality of what that shall mean. But on that slide, you and I know the one behind that is the devil. 
Satan is the one you see who is the arch enemy of the God, the dragon described in Revelation 12. He's the one that's the deceiver of the whole world. In that deception, you now recall what he began to bring about in Genesis 3. It was the serpent who appeared before Eve and he enticed her and she partook of that forbidden fruit and gave to Adam and he took of it too. When God addressed them, you recall what He said. He first addressed the devil. And in Genesis 3.15, He pointed out indeed that you shall be able, you see, to bruise His heel. But He will bruise your head, and the He was the seed of the woman. You'll note that idea of bruising reminds enemy, adversary. The devil does not have fellowship, you see, with God or His Son. Aren't we told that expressly in 2 Corinthians 6? Surely in that connection, in that light, the next statement is easy. Jesus came to destroy the devil, and He did it. 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That means we need not be shackled to the sin to which the devil would entice us. We need not be shackled to the guilt that it brings. The cross paves a way and makes it possible that we could be freed from that. Didn't Jesus forevermore say, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. When you and I make attachment to the cross, and the freedom which it brings, the liberty available to us, we can enjoy a complete victory too over the devil. I've asked you to appreciate as a part of that slide, Revelation 12, verse 11. May we never forget that there is an attack upon the devil which he cannot defeat. It is a three-pronged attack. The writer John would say it like this, If you and I will use the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony and absolute loyalty to Him, we are a force the devil cannot defeat. Did you note though what headed the list? The blood of the Lamb. That takes us right back to the cross. The blood that He shed at Calvary, the blood that He shed on that old rugged cross, you see, is the means whereby Satan's greatest defeat was to be appreciated and the Lord and our greatest victory is to be seen. One more time, an amazing paradox. Perhaps in Luke chapter 11, you notice the reference to the strong man. We've often made note of it. But perhaps it fits so well here again. Jesus said the strong man is here, referring to the devil. But he was quick to say a stronger than the strong man is here. The one who in fact can defeat him, taking the power which he once had had. Didn't the Hebrew writer point out in Hebrews 2.14 that in fact the devil did have the club of death, but Jesus took it from him. We need not fear death anymore. Because if we're saved, we're going to a better place. And Jesus defeated the devil, and so too can we. What a paradox. What about another one? This one perhaps worded like this. The matter of the covenants. The paradox is connected to the covenants. You'll notice that God has often, you see, been a part of a covenant with a human family. We noted one in the lesson last Sunday, didn't we? 
the covenant regarding the rainbow, wherein God promised, I'll never again destroy the world by water. Genesis chapter 9 reminds us. And yet God has been absolutely true to that covenant. Never once departed from it, and forevermore shall He be true to it. He made covenants with the people of Israel, as exemplified in Exodus 24. But you see, we have also that concept connected to a paradox. Look at it this way. In the Old Testament, we encountered a couple of different major covenants by which God interacted with the human family. There was the patriarchal covenant, the one that held sway over all humanity up until the Hebrews were called in Exodus 20. But then we had the law of Moses as the covenant that reigned over the children of Israel. That's described on several occasions in the Word of God. But did you note this? Those Old Testament systems were taken away at the cross. So we had the taking away of some covenants, but the putting in place of another one. Covenants entering, covenants leaving. All at the cross. In Colossians 2.14, Paul would say that old law was nailed to the cross. It was taken out of the way, removed if you please. Its effectiveness was no longer in force. But yet the new covenant was put in place. It's a better covenant. Hebrews 8 at length will develop the fact that covenant is superior to the old one. Aren't we thankful today to be living beneath the superior, the better covenant? No wonder in that connection I've asked you to notice that we today are living in the last days. Now I know the human family has more than once made usage of that as this prediction, if you please, of the Lord's second coming. That's not the way the Bible uses it. We have been in the last days since Acts chapter 2. For isn't it true that on that day Peter stood up and rather directly said, This is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel, Joel 2.28, in the last days. Peter said the last days were taking place then. We have been in them ever since. There will never be another covenant. This covenant, the Christian covenant beneath which we now live, shall be the one that reigns supreme until time shall be no more, until the Master returns. So the paradoxes again were these. Two covenants were leaving, but another one was being established. And that paradox, that distinction, carries with it such great significance and meaning, doesn't it? That one was a little bit briefer, but perhaps it does bring us to this one. Jesus and death and life. Why did the Lord die the way He did? Though we'll develop it in more detail, we might say it like this, Jesus died that we might live. How can someone's death lead to life for you and me? Again, it seems paradoxical. It does not seem possible. And yet, that's the teaching so sweetly of the Word of God. The Lord's death at the cross. Ephesians 2.1, as we noted earlier, so abundantly notes that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Isn't it remarkable? Someone may well be walking around with a great deal of physical life and yet be dead in all ways that really matter. Are we connected to God? Are we living in harmony with His will? If not, we're spiritually dead. 
a spiritually dead man. Each time you and I think of death, we tend to then think about that coffin or the corpse that's lying in it. We think about deterioration and decay of the body. And so it is. And yet in death, the Lord brought life. An amazing paradox, isn't it? It does beg the question, do you and I enjoy that life? Do we have it? It isn't enough just to think so. Our marquee currently has a very profound question on it, doesn't it? It's something to say, I know God, but the far better question is, does God know you? Does He know me? That relates directly to the idea here, doesn't it? And so on that slide in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Note again how it's presented. The Father made the Son to be sin. That is, to carry our sins, to suffer the guilt of them in light of the death on the cross, in order that we might be righteous. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 will, in, in essence, join that discussion and say it like this. Speaking about Christ, He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Through the Lord's poorness, after all, He had so little from a material standpoint, but yet through what He had, we can be so rich, so eternally wealthy, Jesus and death and life. Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you and I have abundant life? May we be honest. Do we have it? Jesus came that we might, but He does lead the decision to you and me. We can choose to wallow in sin and stubborn and obstinate rebellion to God if we want to. Oh, but how He invites us to come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest for your souls. But isn't that a swift reminder of the fact that when that kind of circumstance was presented in the Old Testament, they responded so negatively. They said, we will not. Jeremiah 6, verse 17. May you and I not say, we will not. May we quickly decide to come. What great victory we have in Jesus. And therefore, it brings us to a point of conclusion as we look at one final paradox. Tragedy versus glory. When we, when you and I think the word tragedy, we think something awful, a catastrophe, a disaster. But when we think of the word glory, we think of that which is of extreme honor, that which is of extreme worthiness, the greatest of significance, and that which is to be greatly appreciated. In the cross there appears such sadness, pain, excruciating defeat. And remember, that's what was asserted in Genesis 3.15, you will bruise his heel. You'll cause a minor wound. And Satan did it. The Lord was put to death. But oh, what glory can now be seen in it. 
aren't you quickly reminded of Galatians 6 verse 14? In the closing chapter of the Galatian letter, Paul could say, I will not glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I won't boast, I won't brag about anything, Paul said, except the cross. That's where he found his greatest glory. That's where he found his greatest significance. He had climbed the pinnacle of worthiness in the recognition of the cross. It wasn't in his physical accomplishments, whatever else they may have been. May you and I find our greatest glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. That same person, Paul, could later say, When I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9-11. through Today, we've looked at several paradoxes of the cross. As we've done all that, perhaps a very brief statement of conclusion. I hope in these paradoxes, we've been led to see the greatest truth that the human family has ever been able to know is the truth connected to the cross. We've seen the great strength of God presented, though it looked to be weakness. We've seen salvation offered, though it looked to be defeat. We've seen brightness presented, though it appeared to be darkness. We've seen salvation at hand, though it appeared victory for Satan. Paradox after paradox. Today, you and I need to humbly submit to the cross if we haven't. The plan of salvation is a part of that, and it presents the following demands from the God of heaven. Believe in the Lord, won't you, with all your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could assist in that today, we'd be honored to do it. If you have known the way of life of faithful Christianity and understood these paradoxes, but perhaps over time have come to lose significance and appreciation for them. Maybe you've begun to live wantonly, carelessly, in such a way the cross has become to be of little meaning to you. You need to come back to the cross. All men stand on level ground at the foot of the cross, and the Lord invites you to come. And if we could be of assistance in making acknowledgement and assisting in prayer on behalf of your penitence and confession, we'd be happy to do that too. If there's anyone in this assembly today that would be in position that would like to respond publicly to these paradoxes we've seen today in the Lord's invitation, won't you do that while together we stand and sing?